And regarding that um, three historical stages we're going through, we're in the third stage, the response to Buddhism. Uh, Wednesday we discussed the response to Buddhism coming from the karma side of the Vedic culture, karma kanda, the people that perform lots of rituals and want to go to heaven within the universe and think there's no God and they just want to do the rituals and go to heaven. So, today we're going to discuss the, uh, the response to the other side of the Vedic culture, which was the Yamakon. The Kanda just means division. And that is the people that said that the real point of the Vedas is knowledge. In fact, the word Veda means knowledge. So, um, in the Vedas themselves, in various ways, as we talked about earlier, there was some interest with knowledge, some interest in knowledge. For example, in the first book of the Rig Veda, it said that there's actually one absolute truth, one God that's invoked or understood in different ways, described in different ways by different people. In the tenth book of the Rig Veda, there's a hint of the Purusha, that there's a great person, a God who, in the whole universe, is somehow on the body of this great person. And uh, the universe is within this person, and this person is the universe, and so on. So you have these seeds, but then, in, um, both just describe what happened historically. The, the first, the early stage of the Veda is Samhita. Sam means together. Hita put, put together collections. The original four Vedas, the Rig Veda, Sama Veda, Yajur Veda, Tarva Veda. By the way, the word Atarva, I didn't explain the word Atarva. Atar is an, um, an ancient word no longer used for fire. Atar, so the Atarvan was the priest that tended the fire. Anyway, you get the word Atarva. So, you have these Vedas full of rituals, praises to gods, and you do fire sacrifices, and you get material reward for that. But also in the original Vedas, there was, for example, Tat Vishnu Paramang Padang, Sadapa Shanti Surya, that the, the saintly people are always looking toward Vishnu and the Supreme Abode of Vishnu. So, what happens is you develop this Brahmin literature because, in practice, to perform the sacrifices, they're very sophisticated, very intricate. And how do you do them? It, it, it's a real technology. So there's Brahmin literature that explains how to do the sacrifice. It's sort of like, you know, Vedic sacrifices for dummies or something. You know, it's, it's like a how-to book. But in these how-to books called the Brahmins, people also start wondering, well, why are we doing this? You know, why are we taking time? Why are we doing this? And, well, because the sacrifice gives this and it gives that. Well, why does the sacrifice produce these results? Now, the monks of people that we talked about Wednesday said, well, the Vedas are eternal. They float through different creation cycles. And the words just have all this power. Don't worry about it. Just do the sacrifice. But other people were not satisfied. They wanted to know exactly what is the power of these sacrifices and, where does, and, and how does this all work. So there were some early speculations. Now, as you know, about 2,500 years ago, they had the Shramana movement. Some people started sort of saying, catch you later, and going off to the forest, going off to the wilderness, like city life isn't where it's at, I'm going out to the country, and I'm going to meditate, I'm going to live more simply, and so on and so forth. So you have this movement, sort of back to nature movement, the Shramana movement, people that want to have a more simple, thoughtful life. And one of the Sanskrit words for forest is um, Aranya. So, uh, from that word Aranya, forest, the Aranya gives you these forest books. So when people are out in the forest, they're not in the cities, there's not all these kings and 
ritualistic Brahmins around, they actually start thinking like, what does it all mean and what's life all about? And so you get a little more thinking going on. And originally, so these Aranyaka books actually come out of the Brahmins. They just, it's sort of a natural development. And then when people start thinking even more, and they've been in the forest so long, perhaps, or at least, they're not all literally out in the woods. But people that have sort of started to formalize their lifestyle, like, you know, we're not the Brahmins that do all these complicated rituals. Sort of a, we're sort of a different community. And they start to produce these Upanishads, which... Uh, are really about knowledge. Like, it's really about knowledge, and it's no longer just gradually developing into something else. This really is something else. Although they're still connected to the ritual people. They're not disconnected. Now, this is the same time, remember, that the Buddhist movement is starting, Jain movement is starting, so all kinds of people want something new, something different. Some of them stay within the Vedic culture. Some of them bail out and start new religions. So, uh, these people that were concerned with knowledge, uh, to give an example, uh, here's a quote from the Aitareya Upanishad, one of the early post-Buddhist Upanishads. Because there are Upanishads that come before and after Buddhism, and actually there's a difference. You can, you can see that Buddhism and Jainism, I always have to remember to mention the Jains, because they were just as important back then. These new movements that rejected the Vedas had an effect. And, people on the Vedic side, they had to do a better job and be competitive and so on. So you can see a difference between the sort of like we've got a monopoly, there's nothing to worry about, it's just like do you want to do a fire sacrifice or just go out and think in the forest. But then once the Buddhists and Jains come, it's like, hey, we've got to defend our culture, we have to defend our civilization because these Buddhist monks and Jains are going around trying to convince people to reject us. So, there's a, uh, a pre-Buddhist Jain Upanishad, called the Aitreya Upanishad, that says, Knowledge is the eye of the world, and knowledge, the foundation. Brahman is knowing. Brahman is knowing. It is with this self, consisting of knowledge, that he went up from this world, and having obtained all his desire in the heavenly world up there, became immortal. Now remember, the monks of people, on the Karmakanda side, they say, Swargakamo uh, Yajeda, that you want to go to heaven? Do the sacrifice. Now, knowledge is the way. And you not only go to heaven, it's like the Gyanakanda people, the knowledge, are making a better offer. Okay, those Karmakanda ritual Brahmins offer you heaven, we can beat that offer. Because if you actually get knowledge, you'll go to heaven, you'll satisfy all your desires, and you'll keep going up. There's actually something beyond that. There's an eternal world. You can live forever. You don't just go up to heaven, then come back down, do more sacrifices, go back up. You know, it's like a guy that works hard, spends all his money, and has to go back and get a job again. You know, you get a job, make a lot of money, go out, just enjoy, live it up, and then you're busted and you go get another job. So that's kind of like the karmakanda side. And, and Krishna, the Bhagavad Gita, will describe it this way. Gadagatan, you go up, you come down, you go up, you come down. So the knowledge people are saying, we have a better offer. You can go up, fulfill your desires, and keep going. Go up to an eternal world with Brahman. So that's their basic offer. Uh, now, we're going to talk more about the Upanishads, the actual philosophy of it. Uh, well, here, here's a very interesting quote from the Aitare Upanishad also. They say, That's what it actually sounds like. It used to be an oral tradition. Which means that they say that we worship, because there was all this, you had to do worship and you had to do these sacrifices. They say we worship by asking the question, 
who is the self. In other words, when you, I mean, think of it. This is, this is not completely different than the Buddhist side, the Jain side. On that side, the Buddhists and Jains, they rejected all the rituals. Now, on the Upanishad side, they're still accepting the rituals, but they're saying, actually, the way we worship, the way we do our ritual, is that we seek knowledge. So if you ask the question, who am I? Who is the self? That's a form of worship. That's how we worship. By trying, because after all, they're going to reason. The whole reason the world was created, and by the way, they say the world's created. On the Mansa side, they said there's no creator. There's gods who are just like, you know, soma cups and spoons and you know, fire sticks and stuff like that. They're just paraphernalia. They're cosmic bureaucrats, and there's no God above everything. But on the Upanishad side, no, there is a God. There is a creator. And uh, therefore, the world's created because the creator wants us to be enlightened. Otherwise, why create a world and put souls in it unless you're trying to teach them something? And so therefore, by trying to understand who am I, you're actually doing the real worship. So they say in this old Upanishad, uh, who is the self? Who am I? That's how we worship. And And which one is the self? Because, you know, there's the body, there's the mind, there's intelligence. Remember the Buddhist skandhas? All these different components. That's something I, I, I want to get to, actually. Um, I have one little category here, which we're going to go to now, which is uh, Vedic Anticipation of Buddhist philosophy. And I've already mentioned, well, the point here is that Buddhism didn't emerge out of a vacuum. It wasn't just a bunch of people that dropped onto a strange planet, had no memory of their previous life, and started creating a religion. The Buddhists actually were coming out of this Vedic culture. They were coming out of it, but they were coming out of it. And so they were questioning ritual. But the Upanishads were questioning ritual even before there is a Buddhism. It's not, it's not that questioning ritual like, is, that, is this all life is about, just doing rituals to go to material heaven? People were questioning that even before there were Buddhists. Uh, in fact, I'll give you one example of that. Here is a pre... Well, no, I'm sorry. It's post-Buddhist, so I won't give you that one. But they were questioning ritual before Buddhists. I have one really good quote. We'll have to do it after we... a few centuries from now. So, they're questioning ritual. Also, remember the Buddhist skandhas? That was the second sermon the Buddha, the Buddha gave in the deer park. There are these five skandhas, which are rupa, your physical body, vedana, your feelings and emotions, samgya, the way you kind of organize the world, vijnana, translated poorly, consciousness, which is kind of like your worldview, and then finally, I'm sorry, number four is samskara, your deep psychology, your conditioning, your propensities, and number five is vijnana consciousness. Buddha called these the skandhas, which means the aggregate. But this idea was already there. Because you find earlier, before Buddhism, they use the word kosha, and, uh, which means, well, it means a covering and a, uh, a vessel. Okay, uh, yeah, covering, or a vessel, or a sheath, something that covers you. So, they were already questioning, they were already actually, the Upanishad side, before Buddhism, they already have the idea that my identity, who I think I am right now, the way it feels to be me right now, is just a covering. The real me is inside. And so they use the word kosha, coverings, and Buddha just used the word skanda. 
if that's what he actually uses. But it's the same idea. Another way that Buddhism anticipated, uh, I'm sorry, the Vedic culture had the seeds of Buddhism, this whole thing that you saw with Nagarjuna, you know, like, you can't say something exists, you can't say it doesn't exist, it doesn't exist and not exist, doesn't neither exist nor exist, and all that. The idea of existence and non-existence was already a hot topic before Buddhism. And I'm going to give some examples of that if I ever get back to my notes. So, but in those three ways, people, in fact, I'll give it to you right now, the Rig Veda, uh, in the 10th book of the Rig Veda, uh, verse 129, it's a very famous hymn called the Nasadiya hymn. And, well, it begins, Nasadasi, Nosadasi, which means uh, there was not existence, there was not non-existence. Actually, it starts out with non There was not non-existence, there was not existence in the beginning. And then what happened? Then somehow the creation came. So this language, this way of talking about reality, existence, not existence, is, does something exist or not? Maybe what exists doesn't really exist, or at least not the way we think it does. All that which was so important to Buddhism was already being discussed a thousand years before Buddha in the Veda. So this discussion of existence, non-existence, uh, the coverings of the real self, that was already there in the Upanishads, questioning ritual, and other things. So you can see how Buddhism was sort of building on things that already existed in the culture. But on the, on the Upanishad side, they said, you don't have to go outside Vedic culture. We've got all this stuff, and if you just stay inside the culture, we can deal with it. And we can actually deal with it more... We have greater resources within our culture to deal with all these issues. And we come up with a positive answer, namely that there's Brahman. There's this great reality. I mean, if you've ever... Just one thing about Brahman I want to say, and then I'll... Uh, in the Bhagavad Gita, which we're going to study in a while, in, in the last chapter, Krishna talks about worldview or knowledge. It depends on what quality of existence you're in. In other words, if you're ignorant or passionate or virtuous, and Krishna says, people who are virtuous, they see that there's a reality behind everything. It's like you can feel that in the universe, uh, somehow everything uh, exists together. Everything that exists shares existence. There's a type of unity. And whether you see there's a unity of all people, despite their race or ethnicity, there's a unity of all creatures, despite what species they're in, somehow the whole universe is just one thing, and, and somehow it all works together. So that oneness, that sense that somehow there's a, there's, a, there's a unity of all that exists, they declared was Brahman. And the universe actually comes from it, from that one prior existing thing. Any questions on this? Because uh, if not, well, going, going, going. So I want to talk about the jnana the jnana khanda, the knowledge division of Vedic culture, has its own history and its own organization, which I want to talk about. So we discussed here how the Upanishads emerged from this tradition. And so the Upanishads, uh, as I said, they're pre- and post-Buddhist Upanishads. And uh, the word Upanishad, I've explained one time, well, uh, uh, the traditional way that the word is understood is... Um, Upa means near, ni means down, and sat means to sit, to sit down near. So it's always translated as sitting down near the guru. And the reason you sit down near the guru is because the Upanishads were sort of confidential or almost or secret doctrines. They're called Veda Rahasya. 
So there are early Upanishads where the teacher says to the student, literally, come near, you know, so other people won't hear what I'm about to tell you. So somehow this was considered to be a confidential, a, a secret teaching. And sometimes in the early Upanishads, the, the word Upanishad is used to mean a secret teaching. So you have these Upanishads, and uh, very early on, from this knowledge section of Vedic culture was called Vedanta. Veda Anta. An, Anta is just English N. It's a cognate word. The end of the Vedas. First of all, because uh, the Upanishads sort of came last in terms of the development according to the traditional understanding. And also because you would first learn the rituals in ancient India and then when you were older you would be taught these confidential philosophical or theological truths. So you have the Upanishads. Uh, and so in the earliest Upanishads, they're still very much tied in with the rituals. Uh, for example, um, here's a quote from, the, uh, from a, uh, a book on Indian philosophical history. Though the Upanishad authors sometimes speak vehemently against Vedic ritual, so closely connected with it, are the Upanishads, that it is impossible to understand the Upanishads without some knowledge of Vedic ritual practice and vocabulary. So, I'll give you an example of this. According to everybody, the oldest Upanishad, according to linguistic analysis, is the uh, Brihadaranyaka Upanishad. The great, actually the word Brihad, great, is the same word from which you get Brahman. Uh, the same root. There's, I, I just want to mention that also, there's a Sanskrit root, verbal root, bri, uh, which means to grow, to become great, and that's the root of the word Brahman. And so from this same root, you have the word brihat, which means great, related to the word Brahman. And so there's the great Aranyaka Upanishad, because it was originally coming from that Aranyaka tradition. There's the great Aranyaka Upanishad, which is linguistically the oldest Upanishad, first Upanishad in a sense, and the very first verse, one dot one, dot Brihadaranyaka Upanishad is, Om, it starts with, you know, the sacred Om, Ushava Aswasya Medyasya Shirak Suryas Chakshu, which means, I'll translate it for you, that uh, the dawn, the dawn, when the sun's rising, is the head of the sacrificial horse this kind of uh, somewhat grisly. Ashwa made a sacrifice for a horse was left to just to wander freely anywhere it wanted to go for a year and then it was sacrificed and after the sacrifice it, it, it was after it was killed of course it was cut up and, and cooked. And so here's an, in, in the first Upanishad the very first verse is this that the dawn the dawn is the head of the sacrificial horse and Surya's Chakshu and uh, the eye of the horse is the sun. So, now, two things I could say here. First of all, these early Upanishads are deeply immersed in the ritual tradition. The very first verse is talking about the horse sacrifice, and yet they're creating what scholars call a homology, homo logos. It's like homo means the same, and logos, you know, the logic, the logic that, so comparing the horse's head to the dawn, in other words, the whole universe is connected. One of the basic ideas of the Upanishads is the whole universe is totally wired. 
I mean, think of it. For example, let's say on your computer screen there's a little symbol of a horse. And you've sort of set up your computer so when you click or double click on this little horse icon, you know, it, it changes, I don't know, the setting on your central air conditioning or something. And so that little horse icon is wired to your central air conditioning. Well, the, the, the Upanishadic view was the whole universe is interconnected. It's all wired. So that within a sacrificial context, things in the world like horses and butter and fire and, and milk and all kinds of things, a gold dish, all these things that are used in sacrifice are actually icons. When you double-click on them by chanting mantras, you're actually connected to other things in the universe. So the entire universe is interconnected, and the universe is connected to the Creator. So actually everything is intensely, in fact, as one scholar put it, in history, there was never a culture that, that gave so much cosmological significance to the human body. Every part of the human body is wired to the universe, the cosmic powers, to your own body. The simple physical things around you are all gateways to the cosmos, to different parts of the universe. This is related to the notion of yoga powers. Because you meditate on these different connections, the whole yoga system, the idea of developing powers was that by meditation and mantras and so on, you actually can sort of connect to this wiring and you can transport yourself. You can develop cosmic powers. You can do this, you can do that. So there's a sense of interconnectedness. So the Upanishads are starting to think about it, talk about it like, well, this, it's not enough, okay, like the Mimamsa people would just say, hey, the Vedas say sacrifice a horse. So, sacrifice a horse. And you go to heaven. No, the Upanishads are saying, well, how is this connected to the universe? And what is the universe really? So it starts out like that, but you can see why the Buddhists didn't like it so much, because like the first Upanishad starts out talking about the horse, the horse's head, which presumably was cut off when the, after the horse is dead. So the Buddhists and Jains said, we're out of here. Now, what happens is that, um, another thing is these Upanishads, if you read them, they're extremely sophisticated, extremely technical, and very esoteric. It, it's, it's an amazing the German philosopher Schopenhauer thought it was like the coolest thing he'd ever read in his life. And other, it was a big thing in the 19th century, all kinds of philosophers and European intellectuals and American intellectuals reading them. It's very sophisticated, not available to the common people, it's very symbolic, and that's, but these are the pre-Buddhist Upanishads. Now, the result of Buddhism is, uh, one more thing I want to say about Buddhism. I, I mentioned, uh, we'll get on just another couple of minutes. If you remember, we talked about Buddhism. Buddha taught that there are these five skandhas. We keep saying this, but he did teach it. So, and that's what the essence, the essential doctrine of Buddhism. So number five, the number five skanda, the number five component is Vijnana. So one interesting thing is that in the pre-Buddhist Upanishads, they already were talking about Vijnana as one of the skandhas which I recently discovered. For example, the Aitareya Upanishad, there's a statement, Jaita Hriyangmanas Chaitatsan Jnana Ma Jnana Vijnana Niti Sarvani Aivaitami Prajnana Sinama Dhyani Vilanti, which means that actually this verse, which comes before Buddhism, uses two of the skandhas. Skanda number three was Sangya. We have that same word here, Sangyana. Skanda number five was Vigyana. Vigyana. We have number five here, Vigyana. And the statement that these things are just nama deyani, they're just 
they're just names, they're just names. Uh, but the real thing is higher consciousness. So even technical details like terminology, the Buddha said Sangya, Vigyana, as skandhas, as coverings of the real consciousness. That was already in the Upanishads actually, long before Buddhism. So all these things Buddha is using in his presentation, they actually were already there in the Vedic culture. Another thing, again, Vigyana, again, number, uh, Vigyana is skanda number five, and it's the one which is translated consciousness. Here's something from the Taitariya Upanishad. That beyond the conception of self, that I am Vigyana, there's a certain stage where you take your worldview, you take your overall picture of the world to be yourself, and then it said beyond that, there's another higher self, which is called Anandamaya, it's when you experience spiritual bliss. So the notion that identifying yourself with Vigyana is not the highest state, that was explicitly in, well, here's in the Taitari Upanishad, which is pre-Buddhist. Any questions on that stuff so far? So, uh, anyway, so the Upanishads are, there are many different, oh, let me just say a few words about the Upanishads very quickly. Uh, geography, they come generally from uh, central North Central India and Northeastern India, not too far east. Uh, chronology, there's the pre-Buddhist Upanishads, which who knows how old they are. And then uh, post-Buddhist Upanishads. Upanishads are still being written today. There's originally, you could say, eight primary Upanishads, then the number becomes 12, then there's 108, now there's hundreds. And there's even a development, Upanishads are a genre. There's the earliest Upanishads, which gradually become more theistic, sort of philosophically theistic. And then they develop from philosophically theistic to committed, for example, to Vishnu, Vaishnava Upanishads, or Shaiva Upanishads, committed to Shiva, what scholars in, their, in a very flattering way call sectarian Upanishads. And so you get this development, and there's still, being Upanishads, there's still Upanishads being written, even like 400 years ago, there's, some people are still writing Upanishads. So it's a whole genre. But for the purpose of the Vedanta, the knowledge division of the Veda, they're mostly concerned with the older ones. So you have these Upanishads, and uh, because the Upanishads, for example, the earliest ones are anthologies, they have different authors, they have different topics, they apparently have different points of view. Therefore, at a certain point, there was a movement within the, you could say, Vedic intellectuals, philosophers, to systematize it. Like, we need to organize all this. This is going all over the place. So, you have this work called the Brahma Sutra, it's also called Vedanta Sutra, which begins maybe several hundred years, around, the, you could say, maybe a little after Buddha, depending on who you talk to, or it's eternal, depending on who you talk to, but the Brahma Sutra, Sutra means thread, it's related to the English word suture. Brahma Sutra, these very, very, very condensed little sayings, in fact, I've written the first three Vedanta Sutras. So you have the Brahma Sutra and the Bhagavad Gita. The Bhagavad Gita, in this whole, actually in this whole class uh, semester, this is the, uh, the gold medal winner. In terms of the one that has by far the most impact, the most influence, and gradually becomes, just towers over everything else, as a book that everyone reads, everyone accepts. But at this stage, in the early, let's say, Gyanakanda, you have 
Upanishad, with, with the many different ones, different topics, different approaches, different authors, an attempt to systematize it in a, you could say, a very intellectual way, the Brahma Sutras, and then in a more holistic way in the Bhagavad Gita. Now, these three, the Upanishads, the Brahma Sutras, and the Bhagavad Gita, are the three components, basic components of the Jnana And they're all called prastanas. Prastana means departure. You can still see it in some Indian airports where it says, like, departure. It says prastana. And so, uh, the, there are three as follows. The Upanishads are called the Shruti Prastan, departing from Shruti, you know, the oldest level, this level of Vedic literature, Shruti. So, the Upanishads are departing from Shruti, and the Brahma Sutras, or Vedanta Sutras, are Nyaya, Let's write that, which means logic. In other words, the Vedanta Sutras, they quote scripture, but also their reasoning. There's a lot of, like, fancy logic going on. So it's considered to be departing just from logic and human and reason. And the Bhagavad Gita is the Smriti Prastan. Smriti, the second level of Vedic literature. And that's the Smriti Prastan. So these three things are, are the three components of the knowledge side of Vedic culture. Anyway, Vedanta Sutras themselves, as I'll show you in a second, are so hyper-pithy. I mean, they're so incredibly condensed that you really, if you just read it, you need help. I mean, it's obvious that it's sophisticated. It's obvious that something's going on, but you need commentaries. So people start writing commentaries on Vedanta. And the greatest commentaries created schools, philosophical schools. So uh, the first great commentary that created a school, which is still important in India today, is the school of Shankara. Shankara did his commentary, and I think Monday we're going to talk about Shankara, his commentary on Vedanta. But he, he was a monist. He was uh, sort of halfway between theism and Buddhism. We'll talk all about that. And then you had another great commentary answering Shankara, saying, wait a second, Shankara, you know, there's really a god, there's a personal god, and you're not really getting that. So there's a very famous commentary a response to Shankara by Ramanuja. We'll have a whole class on Ramanuja and, and how he interprets all this. And then there's other commentators. So you have the Upanishads, an attempt to systematize the Upanishads. It's the second level. And then, at least certainly on the Brahma Sutra side, commentaries on that. You have these great, um, they're called Bhashas, great Vedanta Sutra, Brahma Sutra, Vashas, and then you have commentaries in the commentaries, because the great commentaries created schools of thought, and so you, and you, you get these whole spiritual communities with all kinds of scholars, commentaries on commentaries on commentaries on commentaries, which went on until, I mean, it's probably still going on, or certainly went on until the modern age. Yes? Um, are there commentaries on the Upanishads? Oh, yeah, there are, but good point. The Brahma Sutras, the Brahma Sutras, as I'm going to explain in a second, claim to be ex- sorting out and explaining the Upanishads. Got all these Upanishads, all these different points of view, but it all makes sense. It's all coherent. So the Brahma Sutras are saying this is what it all means. And therefore, commentators on the Brahma Sutras, Sutras, they'll say, okay, this Sutra refers to this Upanishad verse, and that Sutra refers to that Upanishad verse. Any other questions on this? 
Because Shastra is Yoni. Because Shastra is the source. That's what it literally means. And it can mean other things also, based on the rules of Sanskrit grammar. So what does that mean? Because Shastra, because Scripture is the source. Well, what everybody says it means is that you have to read the Upanishads, you have to read the Scriptures, because that's where the knowledge is. It's like if you're thirsty and they're only selling water in one place, if you want water, you have to go there. So the idea is, this is where the knowledge is. It's not a question of arguing about whether or not you like the idea of reading a scripture. This is just where the knowledge is. This is just where the knowledge is. And um, so we have three things here. Number one, life is meant to understand the absolute. The absolute is the source of everything. And we learn about that absolute source of everything by reading authorized books. Yes? Is that correlation between going in general, like, supposed to be metaphorical? Like, like the way that Brahma is the source of everything, it is, you know, the way that it's created is through Shastra, or, sorry. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's, obviously, the Janda means birth, and Yoni means womb or source. So, yeah, I, I think it is probably intentional. Now, I wanted to quote, I wanted to quote for you something from a pre-Buddhist Upanishad, a Taitari Upanishad, uh, which actually is an example of what this is about, because it's a verse from the Upanishads, and again, the Brahma Sutra is claimed to be an explanation of the Upanishads. So I want to quote an Upanishad which has all three elements. Brahman being the source and, and, and scripture, because of course the type of Upanishad is scripture. Here's a very famous verse in the Upanishads, which is the type of verse that commentators will always cite. I'll first uh, do the Sanskrit for you. Uh, this conversation between the, the great Brahman of Bhrigu Muni, he's like the considered to be the, you know, the guy who started the whole ancient Indian astrology thing, like the first great Brahman, Virgo Muni. So he says to his father, Varuna, who's one of the great Vedic gods, also worshipped, actually uh, at, at the border of East Southeastern Europe, even 4,000 years ago, we know from different documents that survived. So Virgo says to Varuna, Adihi Bhagavo Brameti, uh, my lord, teach me about Brahman. Teach me about the absolute, right? Adato Brahma Jigyasa. You should inquire into the absolute. And here's an example from Shastra, where a great sage, Brigu, is asking his father, who's a god, please teach me about Brahman. I want to know about Brahman. And his father says, Tavovacha, he said to him, he said to his son, Jitovaimani Bhutani Jayante, that from whom, or from which, all these creatures take birth. You see? Janma, the birth of this world, is from Brahman. And in the Taitri Upanishad, that's what Varuna is teaching his son. Brahman is that from which all creatures have taken birth. And Jena Jatani Jivanti. And Brahman is that by which, having taken birth, the creatures live. So that's the Janmadi. Adi in Sanskrit is sort of like Sanskrit, etc birth, etc. So whenever you use Adi at the end of a word, it means there's a, a list that everyone knows. So everyone knows in this culture that when you say Janma Adi, birth, etc., it means birth, maintenance, and destruction. 
Because those are three phases of all material things, including the whole universe. It's born, it's maintained for some time, and it's destroyed. So that's what this means. And so here in the Upanishads, Jaina Jatani Jivanti. Brahman, once all creatures have taken birth, Brahman, uh, it's by Brahman they live. So that's the second of the three. Janma, and then uh, Stiti, you could say. And then, Japrayanti Avisang Vishanti, Tat Vijigyasaswa, Tat Which means uh, that, and it is Brahman unto whom all creatures again enter when they depart from this world. So there's the Janmadi, right? In other words, the Brahma Sutra is saying, what do the Upanishads mean? This is what it means. If Brahman is the, the birth, the maintenance, and ultimately the destruction. Everything goes back to Brahman. And here we have a verse in the Upanishads saying that, pre-Buddhist. And then finally, the same word. Here we have in the first, well, I have a little technical in Sanskrit and everything. So I'll try to make it as painless as possible. In this first Brahma Sutra, the idea is the desire to know Brahman. And here, Varuna says to Brigu, desire to know Brahman. So all these words, and he says, that's Brahman. So this word, that word, and this idea, and, and I mean, it's all there. So here are the first three sutras, and you find all these ideas in just one verse of the Upanishads. So, the Brahma Sutras are trying to explain it and put it all together in a coherent way, what the Upanishads actually mean. That we, we should desire to know. We shouldn't be dull. We should actually desire to understand. And we should desire to know the Absolute. The Absolute is the source of everything. Not only the source, but it sustains everything. Everything merges back into it. And this information is available in Shastra. So these, these are sutras 1, 1, 1, 2, and 1, 3. These are the first three statements. And you can see they're very short. And that's what the Brahma Sutra is. And so people are going to comment on this. Because some people are going to say, there's a personal God. This is obviously talking about a personal God. And some people say, no, it's not a personal God. And they're going to argue about it for about a thousand years. Okay. Yes? Is that quote found in the beginning of the Parashat? Or like... What I just... Right. Oh. It's... It's one of the oldest Upanishads. It, it's a pre-Buddhist Upanishad. So, so it's something that was there before the Upanishad people were kind of like scrambling and responding to challenges and everything. Right, I just wanted to know if, because in the Brahma Sutra, that's the first three right. things. If it goes, like it kind of corresponds right, right. directly. That would be really neat, but it's not exactly. No. Uh, the, oldest, the oldest Upanishad, the first person, well, unfortunately, but or good or evil talks about the horses okay. being the dawn. So, and you can say, even in the pre-Buddhist, there's another point I wanted to make in the last, my waning time here, that um, even in the pre-Buddhist Upanishads, there's already a movement towards being more philosophical. And so what happened with these Upanishads is, if you remember back in the old, in this early, earliest period, when it's Vedas, way back in the Vedic period, you have different schools, different branches. But when you get to the level of Upanishads, it cuts across all these different Vedic boundaries. And so rather than having priests that do Rig Veda stuff or priests that do Yajur Veda stuff, everybody, all the people into the Upanishads, they just get into the Upanishads. They're philosophers. It doesn't matter what branch you're from. So it becomes kind of like this inter thing. 
Yes. Well, definitely. In, in, in the sense that, um, for example, the whole Ahimsa movement, they, people start waking up saying, yeah, actually, they're right. I mean, why are we slaughtering all these animals? I and mean, if we're supposed to know that everything is Brahman and all creatures are part of Brahman, it's like, what are we doing? So they, so they, there's this big vegetarian movement in India. In fact, they start replacing live, breathing animals, like as if little gingerbread animals or, you know, whatever they made them out of. And also, they start responding. They, they, they start talking about existence and, and, and the soul. And the Upanishads become much more, how should I put it, sort of modern and philosophical, not esoteric, not all symbolic, but really just kind of saying it straight, straight talk, philosophical, telling things like it is, because they have to convince people. And if it's too private and esoteric, it's like, man, you're just into your own stuff. That's nothing to do with me. So you start, you start getting some straight talk, philosophical stuff in the Upanishads. And it, it's very interesting. It's very intelligent. And they, are, they will actually very successfully compete. So much so that after Nagarjuna, as Buddhism, say, in the first few centuries after Christ, it's the Buddhists who must get it, develop this whole big Yogacara school. They're going to sort of jump onto the yoga bandwagon which, of course, is connected. It's all part of the Vedic culture. There were other philosophies, by the way. One last thing. And then, uh, I'm done. And that is that this, the Mimamsas and the Vedanta people, who were both sort of Mimamsas, I mean, first and later Mimamsa, they're just one-third of the different philosophical schools. There are other philosophical schools that are simultaneously fighting the Buddhists, fighting the Vedantas, fighting the Mimamsa people, and so we're going to hear about them also. There's all kinds of things going on. Ultimately, if it sounds like this thing was just completely all over the place, it's the Bhagavad Gita which is going to tie it all together. It's the Bhagavad Gita which is actually going to come up with this masterful synthesis of everything that really satisfies most people. That it just ties it all together. So, But at this point, it's still all over the place. So uh, have a good weekend. See you Monday.